No, I won't. I, I just, there's somebody in here who I'm going to email in just a second, and I, I just looked at him, and I was going to say, I need you to be working on a sermon. And so there's, everybody in here needs to be working on a sermon, but I just have to say, I just spared you, and you should be so happy that I just did that. Okay. All right. Now, what I want to do is, we'll go ahead and start the clock, guys. Happy Mother's Day. Okay. I have already had a spectacular one. I got to, you know, talk to my mom and post something about her, and then some other people posted things and so on. I got to post something about Julie, who is so amazing. And this year is a pretty special one for us because we now have my daughter being a mom as of August 14th is due date. So, you know, come on, it's fun, okay? So... Uh, but with that, let me just head into the sermon. Let me say something. If you took everything that we've been doing over the last years and you boiled it down, if you had to find a phrase that would encapsulate everything that we've been talking about, it would be this. God is trying to teach us how much more he is than what we know so that we will trust him so that we will choose him so that when he says to do something, our first impulse will be to do it. <laughs> so that even if it's not our first impulse, we will trust and believe in him to the point that we actually end up doing what he's asking. This is what he's been trying to do with us for a long time. And I could go into, and you should be happy that I deleted all this part of the sermon, I could go into why I think he's doing that. But let me, just, let me just briefly do this and say, in terms of our journey here, again, I seem to be having a problem too. There you go. In terms of our journey here, we're right about at that flag, which is, puts us out about one week from the crucifixion. Now, I want you to think about the negative side of that and the positive side of that as concerns the disciples. Because here's the deal. Even though he's told them clearly, even though they have every reason to believe it, even though, even though, even though, the fact is they don't know. But in one week, next Sunday, everything in their world is going to change. This Jesus that they've been following is going to die. He's going to resurrect too, but he's going to die. In a couple of weeks from now, before May finishes, sometime in June, they're going to start being persecuted for what they believe. Right now, they're just following him, thinking he's going to be overthrowing the Roman army, doing all of this. Their entire agenda is going to be set on its head in a way that is incredibly discombobulating and disorienting. The fact of the matter is, in a very short period of time, they will be experiencing all kinds of difficult things. And it would be very easy for them to lose heart, to lose hope. To, to not trust as much. I thought he was going to do this, and then he did that, and I don't know if I can trust him now. I don't know if I can trust myself. It'd be very easy for them to back off. But they didn't, did they? To the contrary, God got to them, and he showed them how much bigger he was than they thought he was. And even though all but John faced gruesome deaths, ultimately, and even though all of them faced lots of persecution... These guys were zealous, on fire, painting the town red with God. 
these guys were after it and experiencing something glorious. So here's what I want to say. I think the reason why God is trying to teach us to trust him is because he doesn't want our love to ever grow cold. He doesn't want us to have something happen that would knock us off. He doesn't want us to be built on sand that gets washed away. That's the downside, right? But can we, on a Mother's Day particularly, can we look to the other side and say the reason why he wants us to trust him, to actually do what he says, to follow him for real, is because he's got the most incredible life that you could ever imagine. He's got something so glorious, so wonderful, so spectacular, so magnificent, that he's saying, oh, come and experience this. Oh, come and experience this. You see it? This is what he's doing. He's saying, you have to actually trust me to get here. Otherwise, you'll resist. You'll, we won't come. <laughs> but if you would just trust me, you will step into things that are surpassing. So that's a pretty good way to start, right? Now, wait, wait, wait till you see what we're going to do today. I'm gonna, I've called it the mother of all revelations. Good Mother's Day sermon, right? But the idea is that he's going to show us something about himself that is going to make your understanding, your approach, your relationship with him change so that you can come to him in a much fuller and richer way than you have, so that we can come to him full-throated, full-orbed, without reservation, without fear. So that's where we're headed today. Um, oh, Nancy Tarbert is our prayer today. So Nancy, this is... Oh, man, get to know her, okay? I think a lot of the women did over the, in several different ways, but bottom line, the Bible study that she brought here, the things that she does, her whole family, daughter is back from college now. This is a great family, a great mother. Would you pray for us? Thank you. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for, uh, for filling us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. To... Uh, Thank you for directing us. Amen. And uh, for those of us who are moms, for those of us who will be moms, for those of us who mothers, uh, mother others who are not quite our children, um, we, just, we just thank you for your word. Thank you. Uh, that directs us uh, to, the, to your will. Um, that we can uh, nurture others to be a blessing and to glorify you. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, we thank you for the men in our lives Amen. who nurture us, to, who um, praise us and want for us what God wants for us. Amen. And uh, I just want to lift up uh, Kurt to you today. And uh, I know that you are going to fill him with your Holy Spirit, that we may hear what, we, what you want us to hear, uh, that we can grow in you and glorify you. And I, I'd like to um, lift up... Uh, the community Bible study, uh, the women's Bible study here that we do on Thursdays. You, it's an international uh, organization that is growing leaps and bounds throughout the world, you, including Russia and um, and the other uh, Ukraine and, and, and other areas in, in Europe. 
and we just praise you for, for the growth throughout the world. And we just ask you to bless that ministry so that more and more people can come to know you. Amen. 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 That was a great prayer. Her husband sent her Proverbs 31, and he said, this is you. Just pray this. And she was like, I can't do that. Somebody else can say that about me, but I can't do that. But he's right. <laughs> okay. The Bible is so cool. It's just so amazing. It is such a living word. I have been studying it for four decades seriously, from, from graduate school work to pastoral work and sermons. and everything. I've been studying it so long. It's, it's just ridiculous. You would think that there wasn't anything else that could possibly be discovered in there for, you know, at some point in time. Either that I'm just really stupid. But, you know, I think the truth is, is that it is a living well. It is this thing that is always, always, always revealing more of itself. And so I'm going to share something with you today that I've never seen before. And I'm sort of sitting here going, that's ridiculous that I've never seen it. I don't know if I'm echoing or what's happening, but I feel, thank you very much. So, so here's the deal. In the very beginning of the Bible, by chapter 11, so that's the very beginning, we have a very interesting thing happen. Now before that, what we have is creation. And then we have the garden. And in the garden, remember, the point is, God is saying, I don't want to force you to have to follow me. So if you want to, I've got the garden. If you don't want to, if you want to go your own way, I'm giving you the free will to do that, but you won't be in the garden anymore. That's that glorious life. So they chose their own way, and they went out into a world that was corrupted and polluted by their choice, right? So the bottom line is, that's what's happened. And then God gives them thousands of years where he's saying, basically, will you ever find your way back to me? You think you will, but you don't. In fact, what you actually do is you become so filled with violence that I have to wipe out the whole of mankind, except for Noah and his family. Now, after that, while the earth is repopulating, this is where God does this extraordinary thing, chapter 11. God says, I'm going to pluck a guy, just a guy, and I'm going to have a relationship with him. I'm going to call him out of Ur, a place that is fertile and, you know, good crops and all that stuff. I'm going to bring him to a rocky high place. But I'm going to have a relationship with him. And through that relationship, this is key for today, I'm going to reveal to all the world who I am. And I'm going to reveal who I want you to be. Through that one relationship right there with Abram, Right? So what happens is, very beginning of the Bible, right at the st start of it, and it sets the pattern for the whole of the Bible. What we get is, is God coming and saying, I just don't know, is it me or you? Are we clicking? Am I clicking? Uh, thanks. Uh, okay, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. Now, Abram says back to him, how are you going to give me any reward? I don't have any descendants. He's about 80, in his mid-80s right now. And he's saying, how am I going to have, you know, how can you give me a reward? I'm about to die, and there's nobody to take over except for a servant of mine, right? So that's what he says, and remember that. But then the Lord says, no, it's going to come from your loins. It's going to come from you. And so then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have, Right? Now, 
he's 80, and I suppose an 80-year-old man might be able to do something, but can we all agree that maybe an 80-year-old woman, it's a little harder? <laughs> Wouldn't he have some reason to question what's being said here? You know, he's already asked a question. How can this be since they don't have a descendant? Why doesn't he just say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Could you be more clear? What do you, you know, right? Don't you, it seems like there would be room for some additional questions. But the response that Abram gives is the most important response in all the Bible to God. It is the one that sets him as the father of faith for everybody to come forevermore. Would you go ahead and click it again? And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. He said, at an age where it was impossible for he and his wife, he said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And Abraham's response was, okay. I, not just okay. You know, and it wasn't like, okay, we'll check it out and see if it happens. What he said was, is, I believe. I believe. I believe that what you're telling me is true. I'm going to change the wording just a little bit to really bring it home, what he was really saying when he did that. Click. Okay? Trusted. Whenever you hear belief and faith, if you want to bring them home to you more deeply, do the word trust. Look what trust does. See, I can believe a lot of things, but it doesn't actually come to anything until I trust him to the point that I actually do whatever he's saying. Abraham is in Ur, a land of plenty. Rivers, good ground. Not where he's going to. But he trusted the Lord and came out. Many other times he did so. Many other times he didn't do so great. But bottom line was, do remember that at a certain point in time, he has this child. God says, take him up and sacrifice him. And what's he do? How could that be? You know, this is the one that's supposed to all the, you can't, no, there's got to be some other way to explain this. No. You see what really trusting the Lord looks like when Abraham says, okay. Hebrews later on tells us that he believed that God would raise him from the dead if that's what had to happen. And so he takes his child up there to be sacrificed and even has the knife raised and is ready to plunge it when the Lord says, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> There's a ram and he was setting up the pattern of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice, right? Of, the, of the, somebody sacrificing in our place, right there. So it's an incredible moment, right? But the point is, is that's what trust looks like. That's what it looks like when you really do believe to the point that you trust, to the point that you actually obey, to the, trust that you, to the point that you actually follow. Now, this becomes the pattern for all of mankind for the rest of history. Click. Okay? Abraham, this is Romans, and this is about all of this deeply. There's a lot of it in there, but I'm just picking out one, one section. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever he promises. Because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And whenever you hear the word righteous, always think right standing, standing right with him. You're standing in a way that pleases him. Actually, let me do something. Think about, think about it. Can somebody be standing right with you if you don't trust them? You can't, can you? Right? In order to stand right, you've got to trust them to the point that you're standing right with them. See what I mean? You trust them. Not only that, but what happens? Thank you very much, Adam. But not only that, but I want you to think about something. What happened in the garden? 
there was a lack of trust, wasn't there? You said that this is the way to go, but it feels like this might be better, so we're going to go that way. Now, what does Abram do when he does that? We've had thousands of years between the garden and this moment, even though it's only chapter 11, standing right at the beginning of the Bible. But what, what happens when Abram does that? He's reversing the decision that, Abraham, that Adam made, Eve made. Do you see it? They're saying, no, we're going to go our way. And Abram is saying, no, I'm going to go your way. Do you see that? So this is what Paul's saying. Because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as right standing. When the Lord counted him as right standing, it wasn't just for his benefit. It was recorded for ours too. Assuring us that God will count us right standing with him if we believe in him. If we trust him. If we believe what he did for us, which is the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us what? Right with God. And if we believe that, if we trust that, if we know that, if we incorporate that, and if we live that. Now, that's not to make our salvation works, but there needs to be a response, doesn't there? You're going to see the fruit of it. You're going to see the person willing to sacrifice the son. You're going to see people who have decided, who have made God, Jesus, their God, their Lord of their life. Lord means who decides for you. That's what the Lord means. It means the decider. When you have a Lord over you, you don't make decisions. The Lord does. The Lord makes decisions for you. And what you're saying is the decisions you make are better than the ones that I make. And so even though I have free will and I could make these other decisions, I choose to stay under you. I choose to stay with you. See it? Now, as Paul is saying, that happens at the very beginning of the Bible. And from the moment that that happens with Abram, this is the pattern for all believers until the end. There it is, right there. Beautiful, right? Perfect. Now this part, everybody in here probably knew. I hope you got some richness in it. But now here's the part that I didn't catch. When God did Abram, that was a new thing in the world. He was doing a new thing. He had let them go on their own for thousands of years, but now he was going to have a relationship with us again through one person, right? So when he did a new thing, there was a thing that he established at the very beginning about what that was to look like. And then we measure ourselves against it. Not, 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 anyway, you get the point. When God does a new thing again in Jesus Christ, he once again has a person do something to show us. He comes and he interacts with one person so as to reveal himself, who he is in fullness, and who he wants us to be. Do you know who that person is? No. Christ Jesus is God. Who's the person that God interacts with? Just like at the very beginning of the Old Testament, who's the person that God interacts with in the beginning of the New Testament that responds in a way of faith that is extraordinary? Mary. Mary. Think about it. Watch the parallel here. God does this kind of stuff all the time. But watch the parallel. We just read the story about Abram. Watch this story. Same thing happens. I'm still not working. Click. Click. Oh, no, no, no don't click. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. Don't be afraid. Got it? Right? Don't be afraid. 
Same thing he said, right? All right? For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Click. Mary said to the angel, but how can this happen? Do you see the same thing Abram did? Response, how can this happen? I don't have an heir. She's saying, I've never had relations. It's even the same thing. It's no, it's the person. I, how can I have a child if I haven't had sex? Right? How can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Now, why doesn't Mary do the normal thing that I think we would all do? Huh? What in the heck are you talking about? Let's just take this. I want you to show, I want to show you that this decision, this moment that Mary has is actually greater than the one that Abraham had. Because if Abram at the time, but then Abraham because he got renamed Abraham because he's now the father of many nations, which includes us. Went from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. But Mary has to extend it because think about this for a second. Why couldn't, could not Mary have said this back to God? You do know I'm engaged. You do know that if I'm suddenly pregnant and he hasn't slept with me, which we haven't, you do know that this is going to be a problem, right? Not only that, but, and this is a cultural thing where we've just jumped the shark so badly, but I want you to think about what it was like for a girl in that age, because here's what would happen. The bride and the groom would get married, then they would have the reception and during the reception, the bride and the groom would leave the reception and go make love. And when they came back to the party, elders would go and look at the bed and see whether or not there was the blood from a broken hymen. Sorry, but that's what happened. And if there wasn't, if this girl was not a virgin, the marriage was immediately annulled. A party's off. She is shamed forever. Not only is she shamed, but her family is disgraced to the point that the likelihood is it's going to cost them, not just in their reputation in the town, but financially. They're not, they're not a, a, a family that can be dealt with with high integrity. Do you think maybe that might have possibly been one of the things that could have maybe been running through the mind of Mary at that point in time? Would that have been a reasonable thing? If I'm pregnant and I've never had sex, what are people going to think? And what is this going to do to my family? Do you see it? Let's just go to a whole other area altogether. You're telling me that God is going to be born from my womb? Huh? <laughs> this makes no sense. These are all the things that Mary could have done and would have been totally reasonable for her to do. But she did exactly what Abram did. Click. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I love this wording. I changed it to ESV because NLT sometimes will mush something up. And, and ESV is very literal. But listen to, the, listen to these words. Let it be to me according to your word. Period. 
all that other stuff that we've been talking about. I don't care about that. Isn't what's important to me. This is not where I am. Here's where I am. Let it be to me according to your word. Why? Because I trust you. I believe that what you've said is what you want and what you're doing. You see it? I mean, this is an extraordinary moment. And do you see the incredible parallel between this moment and Abraham's? Do you see it? Now, we could say God was just repeating himself in order to make the point that something new is happening, just like something new was happening here when he was choosing a man and then a tribe and then a nation, right, of Israel that came out of that man. But I want to argue something quite different than that. I want to argue that God was completely extending our understanding of himself at this moment. I want to argue that it's no mistake that the first one was a man and the second one was a woman. That he was doing something very specific here. Now, I'm going to get so close to the blasphemy train, I'm asking you not to walk out until I'm done, and then you can come up and hit me if you like. But I need you to understand something. God chooses to call himself in the masculine. He refers to himself in the masculine. And when at church, we'll say, we pray to our father and mother God, that is not how God has chosen to reveal himself. It is not how he speaks about himself. And it is not proper theologi theologically. There are issues that it raises when you do that. But we make, and so we make a mistake when we do that, but we make an equally big mistake when we think that God is male. Because he's not. He's spirit. He's neither male nor female. In fact, even when God creates Adam, the first human being, we have to understand that Adam was not male the way we know males today. Click. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here's what the idea is. God creates Adam in his image, and the point is there's something about him that is more than what we now call male and female, because what happens is, is God comes in and takes, he sees that he's alone, and he says, that's not good, and he takes out of the man something that he then makes the male that we now see and the female that we now see. And it's not until the two come back together that we have the image of human beings that God created. Do you see that? When the male and the female come back together and become one, that's the fuller, richer, more complete understanding and the image of God that he meant to communicate. Do you see that? Now, if that's true, then we're going to see something about God, that he's not always referring to himself as male. Again, just hang in there with me if this offends. But let me show you some examples of this. Go ahead, click. Um, click again. I will comfort you there in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. What's he saying? Why didn't he say as a father comforts his child? You know why? Because there's a difference. There's a difference in how a mother comforts and how a father comforts. We're going to get to this in a lot more detail in just a second, but if, they, if you're young, right now your antenna just went up and you said, wait a minute, stereotypes, just hang in there with me. I will comfort you there in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. Let's go again. Click. 
Never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she was born? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, the love that I have, look, a mother's love for the child that nursed at her breast and came from her womb is different than what a father and a man will ever know. It just is. And he's saying, I know that. I know that feeling. That is what I did with you. Even if it were possible, I would not forget you. Are we, could we try it again? Let's try it one more time. Is it working? Oh, there you go. Thank you. All right. He will say, thank you, Adam. He will say, I have long been silent. Yes, I have restrained myself. But now, listen to this, like a woman in labor. How many men know what a woman in labor feels like? Because I can tell you my wife makes it incredibly clear to me that I do not. <laughs> I, have, I have tried to describe something close to it to women before, and she has made it clear to me that I'm not to ever do that again. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> exactly, okay? So the point is, is he's saying, I know that labor. I know. I birthed you. Now, I want you to see something here. I could have gone to Psalms and other places where God refers himself in a feminine form. But I picked Isaiah passages on purpose, and here's why. Of all the books in the Old Testament, no book more, more richly foretells what's going to happen in the New Testament in the new covenant, in the new relationship that he's about to bring. No book more richly foretells it than does Isaiah. And just to show you how much this is true then, that means that Jesus ought to be doing such things also because he is God. And sure enough, we see Jesus, for example, in one place, Matthew, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her cheek, chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Do you know how easy it would have been for Jesus to have used a male analogy there? But he didn't. And it wasn't, it was intentional. He's trying to say there's something in how a mother gathers and covers and protects. There's something different about that than how a man does. Now, again, that's setting off some alarms. So let's go into it, okay? Here's what I'm trying to say if we had to il graphically illustrate this, okay? The father aspects of God's nature right here, and most people would say, that's God. We think of him in male terms. We're to think of him in male terms, and that's how I think of him. So I relate to him as I do males, whether I'm female or male, right? I relate to him in a male format, right? But what I just did with these scriptures is I tried to say that there's another aspect to God, which is the mother aspects of God's nature. And here's the first thing that I want you to see on this. There's a huge overlap. There's a huge overlap. In fact, we're going to get to that even more deeply in a second, but I just want you to see a lot of it's the same, but there is nonetheless some difference. And what I said today about this sermon is God wants to reveal himself in a deeper, richer larger way than how we typically think of him. And this is that. Because if you think of God only in his maleness, in his fatherness, there's something larger here. And we're going to see how important it is that we actually see him as he is in his larger 
as he is in his more rich and full. But let me just take this for a little while right now. Okay? Maybe, maybe father aspect of God's nature and mother aspects, maybe a better way to put that is that it's clear to us that God has the heart of a father and the heart of a mother. By what he said, do you see that? Does that help you a little bit to where you can kind of, all right? But he really does have the heart. He's not a guy thinking he gets it. He actually gets it. Okay, so that would be a little treat for the women in the room right now. So, all right. But now what I want you to think about is, I want you to think about this. First of all, when we start talking about fathers and mothers, what's the biggest problem going to be in today's world? That we all had earthly mothers and fathers. No matter how good they were, there were problems, flaws, because they're not perfect. The unfortunate fact of a world that is falling apart is that all too many people have had fathers and mothers which they cannot image the the, the, they cannot image God in fatherhood or motherhood because their father or their mother was so bad, was so dysfunctional, was so broken that it has broken their ability to see God in either one of these in a healthy manner because of what it means. And so I need you when we, when we say, look at God in both his fatherness and his motherness, I want you to do something. I want you to understand that what we're talking about is the archetype, archetype, the model the original pattern or model from which all things of the same kind are copied or in which they are based, a model, a first form, a prototype, which is to say, how is it supposed to be? For our conversation today, we take it to mean the way that things are supposed to be. The example or model that we were supposed to base our understanding relationship upon. And there's a really cool thing that God has built into every single person. No matter how bad your earthly mother or father might have been, we all have an archetypical image, a, a, a thing in us that tells us what should have been. Do you see it? There's a transcendent aspect to us to where we can almost measure how good or bad our mothers and fathers were against this perfection thing that is in us. So what I'm asking you to do is not to think of this in terms of your earthly parents, I'm asking you to think of it in terms of the parents that God intended us all to be. Or, more accurately, the parent that he is in both hearts. See that? But now there's a second thing, and I've been referring to it. Okay? So that's that. But you see, if, you were, if you're my age, and you grew up watching Father Knows Best, then here's what a dad did. This is the stereotype now. I'm, I'm going to destroy something that's very important for us to destroy because we have a corrupted understanding of what a father is and a mother is based on what's been happening in the Industrial Revolution and so on. Here's what my image of a father is. My image of a father is father knows best. My dad went to work. Now, he didn't come home and have a highball. Is that what they called him? Was, I don't even know what a highball is, but a highball, right? <laughs> okay, right? They would have the little drink. And then the kids would come in and talk to him, and he would talk to him, but he would read his paper, and then they would eat dinner together, and then the kids would go off and do something else, and then he'd be with his wife, and then they'd go to bed, and that was it, right? But do you see the nature of the relationship? And we think that that's what a father does. You do understand that that's not what God meant for fatherhood whatsoever. You do understand that the model that he had in mind was agrarian. It was the one where what happens is you work with your son. You apprentice them. You train them. And your daughter. You apprentice them and you train them. And by the way, the mother worked with the son to apprentice and train and worked with the daughter to apprentice and train. Do you see that? 
So the fact of the matter is, is if you have this kind of a, if you have this kind of image in your mind because you're of a certain age, you're really missing the true prototype, the true archetype, the true model of what God intended in father and mother. When it's that far apart, that's not God at all. There's a distinction here that only has a little bit of overlap, and that's not true. There's an enormous overlap, and praise God for the millennial generation. There's so many things they take heat for, but can I just tell you, I love the way they parent their kids. Now, you can call it overboard too, and surely it is, because everybody gets it wrong somewhere. But here's the point. Dads are incredibly involved in kids' lives now in ways that was not true when I was growing up. We played catch and threw the ball, but that was about it, Okay? And now dads are right in there, on their knees, playing with the kids, having fun in their lives, talking about deep things, doing all the things that God intended fathers to do. <coughs> this distant idea of God and, and all of that kind of stuff, this is not what he had in mind, okay? But when I say that, I want to say something. There is a move afoot today to try and make male, female, father, mother be exactly the same thing. And that's also not true. There is something that is distinct even if there's enormous overlap. Even if the way that God is, that what a mother does and what a father does. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm splitting a hair that is so fine that if you have defense mechanisms up about this, you're not going to hear what I'm saying. But I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to really press into is there any difference between what a father's to do and what is a mother to do? Is there any difference? Because I want to suggest to you that there is, and if I were to say what it is, as best I can, and by the way, you can absolutely say this the other way too, but just stick with me. A heart, the heart of a father, the priorities are, number one, to raise them up. Yes, in an attitude of love. Not of just discipline, not the, not the impossible father who sets the high standard that you could never please and you're always distant from them, right? That's not what we're talking about at all, is it? But what we are talking about is, as a dad, I'm being totally truthful now, women, you will not like this, but dads, you'll know that this is true. My number one goal was not that my kids love me. I hoped that. And they knew that what I was doing for them was out of love. But that was not my number one goal. My number one goal was to raise them up so that they would be successful in this world, which can be brutal, which can be harsh. That was my number one goal. And if I had to say it in the way that I would say it, it would be something like this. I, felt a I feel a responsibility to raise this child I love so much. Is love in there? Love is everywhere in there. But there's this other thing that causes my priority to skew a certain way. And I'm going to show you this now in a, in a um, song. And I'm going to sing to you, so no. <laughs> I don't know. Why is everybody laughing? This is a brand new song by Zach Brown. And I think it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make about this. It's called My Old Man. He was a giant 
I was just a kid, I was always trying To do everything he did I can still remember every lesson he taught me Growing up, learning how to be like my old man He was a lion We were a father's pride But I was defiant When he made me walk the line he knew how to lift me up when to let me fall Looking back, he always had a plan My old man My old man Feel the callous on his hands And dusty overall Son of my own, he's always trying to go everywhere I go, do the best I can, raise him up the right way, hoping that he someday wants to be like his old man. Pictures worth a thousand words. I hope that song communicates. I, I, again, if you're a guy, I know it does. There's a resonance in there. Not just son to father, but it's what a father is and what he wants for his child, what, he, what he's tasked with in the Lord, what the heart of a father is. Let's look now at the heart of a mother in contrast. And the funny thing is, is it's, it's just almost imperceptible, the difference. Look at the priority over here. Raise them up in an intimacy. Over here, the, the top priority is intimacy and raise them up. Does she care about raising them up well? Absolutely. That, that archetype of the mother just loves you no matter what, no matter how much you screw up you are, that's just nonsense. That's not godly or anything else. Of course a mother wants to raise her child up so that they succeed in the world. Of course they want to do these things. And that's very much a part of everything they do. But first and foremost, what's important to them is the love. A woman would not consider a child 
that did not love to be a success. That would not be what they think is most important. What is most important to that heart. In fact, again, to, to just kind of say it a certain way, I love this child with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and do what, will do whatever I can to help them. Now, those two statements may look almost exactly alike to you, but they're not. The subtlety is fine, but important. And if I had to tell you the heart of a mother and communicate it, I'm going to give you another song. And this one comes from an ABC Good Morning show. It's a guy named Garth Brooks, and, and I'm not a huge Garth fan or anything, but anybody who is really successful in their genre is brilliant. But nonetheless, I want you to see something about the heart of a mom that is expressed in a song. Uh, but there is a song on this album that just, it just kills me. It should have been written 50 years ago. It's a conversation between God and this unborn child about ready to go down to earth. And when God describes what a mom is, it kills me. Sorry. Little baby told God, hey, I'm kind of scared. Don't really know if I want to go down there. Cause here it looks like a little blue ball. But that's a great big place. And I'm so small. Where's the Kleenex, she said. 
And you feel it, don't you? There is this, okay, let me. I want you to see what happens when we only see God as Father. Because it did happen. God revealed himself to Abram as Father. And we twisted and perverted it. It wasn't God that did that. We corrupted it and made it something quite different than what God intended. And so, what you get is, when the Father God becomes corrupted, he becomes distant, not intimate. When the Father is corrupted, he becomes a harsh taskmaster, not grace-filled. He becomes angry, not loving. He becomes holy, not merciful. What that does to our relationship is, it makes our relationship about the law, not about the relationship. It's about what I do, not who I am. Have I lived up to? It's about what he does for me and what he wants me to do, not about who he is. You see this? This is all corrupted and broken from what God wanted us to do. And so here's what I think God's gift is to you this day on Mother's Day. This is what I think he's trying to give you as a gift. I think he wants you to approach him. There is that father heart of God to raise you up. And he's always going to be doing that. And you always want to do that. But I think what he wants to show you right now is there's another heart. It's the same heart. But it's an expression of it that we would more typically associate with mother. And this is the one that he wants you to approach him with today. Because what that's about is love. No matter what. That's not how a dad approaches that, right? It is and it isn't. But you see, with a mom, it's no matter what. Nurturing. And what's really important, for a dad, you doing well and prospering and being able to provide for your family, that's success. For a mom, do you love people? Do you care for them? Are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you respectful? See what I mean? Do you care for other people? Do you hold them precious and valuable? Now, Dad does that too, the un, right? But you get the point. Grace, unmerited favor. I want to tell you, what is, the, what is the key phrase in the New Testament? The key concept? Grace. Now, that was always there in the old, the, the animal sacrifice and all the things. But it's grace as in just flat out, unmerited favor, the free gift of Jesus Christ. That goes more to the mother heart. Covering. She looks through love to see you. What does God do? He covers us with the blood of the Son. And when he looks at you, he sees you cleansed. Doesn't see you screwed up. Sees you cleansed. That's what a mother does. They look through this, this umbilical corded haze about who their child is, and they're wonderful. And because of that, they lift you up. Mothers kiss the boo-boo. They tell you you're wonderful. They tell you it's going to be better and that you're better. This is who you are. They call out the best in you. 
Not to say a father can't do that, so don't misunderstand. But do you see what's happening here? God in the New Testament is trying to show us the part that was always in the old, but that we didn't get. And he's trying to bring it to a place to where we see this. And let me just make this really practical. When you mess up, when you sin yet again in that stupid thing, that you, whatever it is that you have, or when something bad is happening and all this kind of stuff, and you run to the Father, that means something, doesn't it? Can you run as a failure to the Father? Yes, you should be able to, but, but it's harder, isn't it? When we run to God that has, that has the heart of the mother, it's acceptance, right? It's holding you. And then, yes, you get moved over to the Father that helps you. Do you see it? This, by the way, is where the Catholic doctrine of Mariology comes from. They made God out to be male only. And so they had to have a female love. It's a misunderstanding of who God is. God's heart is so much more for you than Mary's ever could be. It's ridiculous. God birthed you. God fed you and nurtured you. God loved you and covered you. See it? Do you see the different God that you get to come to? In both of his aspects? It's not one or the other. It's both. But because you're recognizing him as distinct, it's richer in both. And so let me just end it with this. The book of Romans is not typically thought of as being a touchy-feely book. Just as a general rule of thumb, plenty of women that study it and do a beautiful job with it, plenty of men that don't like it. But as a general rule of thumb, we would consider it to be a more male-oriented book. It's about very close reasoning. It's about other things that we would typically associate stereotypically that way and so on. But here's what I want to say. You don't understand the book of Romans until you understand something. Here's what Paul's doing in the book of Romans. The most important book in all the Bible. The book of Romans is the most important book in all the Bible. It's more important than the Gospels. It's more important than anything else. The book of Romans is the one where God is explaining to you everything. And here's what Paul is doing. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, as a man who was excelling in the zealousness of, of the things of God, as a man who was excelling in keeping the law, he came to understand, like Martin Luther's and so many others have, that you can't do it and that that wasn't the point. And now what he's doing in Romans is in a very careful and organized way, he is deconstructing the male corrupted way of thinking about God. And he's telling you that that's not what it was at all. The law is not something for you to, hold, to keep up to. The law was there to prove to you that you could not keep up to it and that you needed a loving God to come and embrace you and hold you with grace and unmerited favor. That's what the book of Romans is about. And that's why the climax of the book of Romans is when he said, there is therefore now no condemnation. But that chapter ends with a summation of those first eight chapters, which are the most important eight chapters in all the Bible. And here's how it ends. Since he did not spare his own son, and this is kind of a male way of thinking about it, but then he's going to go to flip to the female. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us? Whom God, when I say male, by the way, let me just say, it's that sort of waffle, 
you know, compartment to compartmentalized, whereas women are holistic in the way that they think their brains are literally different in how they process information. So this is that compartmental to compartmental to, this is what he's doing. Now watch this. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. So can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And now I want you to read the last words that he says in the most important place in the entire scripture, only I want you to read them with a woman's heart. Read them through a woman's eyes. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. We are umbilically connected and forever will be. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Lord, in Jesus' name, we have come before you right now, and we have, you have shown us a larger way of seeing you, a larger way of approaching you, a way of, of, of not, not being too distinct, but not being too undistinct either, a way of coming to you and understanding that you have a heart of a father and a heart of a mother and that you receive us with both and that we're to come to you with both, that both are in play all the time. It is who you are in fullness, in oneness. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come to you right now and we say, God, help us to approach you. Help us to approach you in this new way, the unmerited favor of grace. The love that cannot be separated no matter how dumb we are. No matter how resistant we are. As long as we continue to turn back to the one whose arms are open and that we run into. And thank you, God, for then receiving us and then lovingly helping us to victory, to new places. Jesus, holy and most magnificent name. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and revealing to us what had gotten lost, the love that God has. Thank you, God, for revealing it to us through a woman that you would show us the fullness of yourself in a way that we can hold on to. Thank you, God. Reach down in front of you. 